Well, so glad that you are here today, Easter at Active. You made it. This is it. This is the day we've been waiting for. And what a gift it is to have you a part of the story that God is writing today. My name is Mike. I serve as the lead pastor here at Active. And this year, my wife and I will be celebrating 21 years at Active Church together. And so this is our 21st Easter with you. And we're so thankful that you're here. So last summer, I experienced something that I had been waiting for for a really long time. My son has fallen in love with the same music that I loved as a teenager. And so last summer we went to a concert and this concert consisted of three bands I listened to and now my son who is in high school loves and listens to. The bands were the Gin Blossoms, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and the Bare Naked Ladies. Now, just in case you're questioning my ability to parent, the band, the Bare Naked Ladies, are 50-year-old men and they're fully clothed. I just want you to know that. But there was nothing like being in that moment with him and singing out all the songs I sang out when I was a teenager. And you know that the Bare Naked Ladies have some really like meaningful spiritual lyrics like in their song One Week when they sing Chickity China, the Chinese chicken, you have a drumstick and your brain stops ticking, watching X-Files with no lights on, we're Dalamazon, I hope the smoking man is in this one, like Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic, like seeing I'm tantric, like Snickers, guaranteed to satisfy, like Kurosawa, I make mad films, okay, I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. You get a set of better clubs, you find the kind of, okay, all right. You were at the concert with me, I mean, that was literally what we were doing, maybe me more than Gav, I think at one moment Gav was like, not my father, like it was... But I remember that moment for me and for him. It was, it was just beautiful to be able to like sing with him. And I remember thinking like, we've arrived. This is it. Then earlier this year, we as a family, we sat around the television in January to watch the NFC Championship game. That's football for those of you that are not fans of the sports, all right? And we were watching this game against the uh, we're, we're watching this game. It was the Philadelphia Eagles against our favorite team, the San Francisco 49ers. Hey, I don't come to your work and heckle you, all right? You staple those papers, right? Like, you do it terribly. No. And so we're watching this game, and we were excited about the prospect of the Niners going to the Super Bowl. They had a quarterback who was the last pick in the NFL draft that previous April, and they have a name for the last pick in the NFL draft. They call him Mr. Irrelevant. And yet, Brock Purdy made the Niners so relevant that we were in the championship game, and so we were confident that this was going to be our season. And five minutes in, he blows out his elbow. And then, they bring in the backup quarterback, and he gets a concussion. And so at one point, my wife leans over to me and she says, well, who's going to play quarterback? And I said, I think they're about to call me because they didn't have anybody. And this relevant, powerful 49ers team looked so irrelevant after they lost their quarterback. And I remember thinking, I remember a moment out loud saying, this is it? <laughs> this is what we've been waiting for? 
I think all of us have moments that we've seen and heard and experienced, and we can say, this is it, exclamation point. And then I think we all have moments in our lives, in our stories, where we could say, this is it, question mark. You know, for us, Easter is a celebration. No matter who you are, where you come from, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're intrigued by Jesus, or maybe Easter is just the day that your family gets together, and so this is part of the tradition of your family, and so you're all here today, maybe for the first time in a, in a whole year, but we all come into this place, and we have the same perspective. This is a day of celebration. Jesus has resurrected, and we say, this is it. It can be summarized by the words in Matthew's letter when the first disciples went to the tomb and there was an angel sitting there and the angel looked at Mary Magdalene specifically and said, he is not here. He is risen. And why do you look for the living amongst the dead? See, this moment for us is celebratory, but yet that first Easter, there wasn't a celebration. That first Easter was more of a question. And so what I want to do today is I want to take you into that moment, and I want you to feel that moment, not just read or hear, but feel what they felt. And then I want to share with you what changed the entire world and why the resurrection matters to you and matters to me, and then I want to invite you to do something really courageous today. So let me take you back to that first Easter weekend, that Friday Jesus is arrested, he's convicted, falsely convicted, and he's put on a cross. And he's crucified. And he dies. And do you know who was in the crowd that day? John, who was with Jesus for three years. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene, who Luke tells us in his his letter in the Bible is really powerful. It was after he investigated the story of Jesus. Luke tells us that Mary had seven demons brought out of her. Like, that girl's got a story, doesn't she? And that Jesus did the healing in her. But you know who wasn't there? Believers. Christians. The church. People with a Bible. It was just heartbroken followers of Jesus who maybe thought and even said out loud, this is it? This is what we've been waiting for? And just a week before they were winning, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they were laying down palm branches and laying out their jackets and they were calling him the King of Kings, the Messiah. They were shouting Hosanna, which means save us. And within a couple of days, Jesus is falsely convicted, and he's hung up on a cross. And what you find on that first Easter weekend, there were no believers, there were no Christians, there were just heartbroken followers who thought, this is it. You know, the goal of crucifixion was terror. The, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Greeks did. But the Romans, they, they perfected it. Like, put that down on your resume. We, we didn't invent the way to kill somebody, but we're really good at it, right? And the goal was to terrorize, to 
Remind the people to not cross them. The goal was oblivion. If we could just get rid of you, like you never existed. And they would hang you on a cross until you took your last breath, and then they would remove you from the cross, and they would toss your body into the junkyard. And for a price, if you were wealthy enough and you knew somebody, you could bribe them for the body of the one that you loved. And Joseph of Arimathea was somebody who purchased the body of Jesus. And he had it buried in the tomb that was his own private tomb on his property. And the goal was after the Sabbath, because on the Sabbath, that's when you honored God and you didn't do anything in the Jewish story, in Jewish history. The goal was then to, after the Sabbath, grab the body and remove the bones and put it in a box, and then they would place it in a home, similar to what we do with ashes of friends and family, and we do that in a way of honoring them. This was the goal. And Joseph wasn't the only one that participated in this. Nicodemus did as well. And both Joseph and Nicodemus were what you would call private followers of Jesus, because they were a part of the religious establishment. And they were afraid that if they spoke out about their trust and followership of Jesus, that that would actually get them killed. And they were right, because the religious establishment killed Jesus. And then he was dead. And then there were no believers. They struggled to even believe that he was the Savior because he couldn't even save himself. We're told in, in history that the first followers of Jesus didn't know what to do. Thomas, Thomas flees the city because he believed that they could kill the leader, they'd kill him. Peter, who was a fisherman and followed Jesus, went back to being a fisherman because isn't it true that when things get really hard and things get really heavy, that often we think it's easier to just put God over here or to take him off of the table, and it's easy to go back to the things that are just familiar to us. Matthew, who was a tax collector, followed Jesus, couldn't go back to being a tax collector because Rome had just killed Jesus, and so they would probably kill him. And then in, in one, house, one house, one home, was John and Mary and a few of the first followers of Jesus, and they were all shook. They were all afraid. They were all scared. There were no believers. There were no Christians. There was no church. There was no the Bible. And again, nobody believed that Jesus was the Savior because he couldn't even save himself. This is it. The thing that often gets overlooked in the story of Jesus is that Jesus, when he came, the central piece of his movement was not his teachings. Although what he taught was remarkable and extraordinary, like love your enemies and turn the other cheek and offer forgiveness and be somebody that's present and compassionate and gracious and restore each other gently and be courageous and bold and receive and trust the movement of God in your life. Like he taught some really great things, but the central piece of his movement was not his teachings. He didn't come to leave us some insight or short stories or parables. He didn't ask people to follow his ideas. He didn't ask people to follow his interactions. Jesus invited people, you and me as people, to follow him. And the reason why people followed him, the central piece of his movement 
was on the claim of who he said that he was. That he is God in the flesh. That he's God with a bod, friends. This is the central piece of why people follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus even claimed to be greater than Moses. And Moses gave the law to the Israelites. And Jesus claiming to be greater than Moses is his claim that he's greater than the law. And nobody would claim that unless they're God. Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple. And at the temple is where you would get right with God. And nobody would claim that unless they're God. In fact, Jesus even said at one point as he walked this earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you put your eyes on me, know that I came to communicate and demonstrate what God is like. The first followers of Jesus didn't follow because he was a really great communicator, although he was. The first followers of Jesus didn't follow Jesus because he had some really great values and short stories and parables, although he did. The first followers of Jesus followed Jesus because of what he claimed about himself. He is God, and he is here, and he is the one that we've been waiting for. And when he died, they believed everything died with him. In fact, they even write themselves into the story as if the story is over. Even the mother of Jesus expected Jesus to do what dead people do. Stay dead! Right? They write themselves into the story as if the story is over. There was no Easter sunrise service. There was no countdown broadcasting live on Instagram from the tomb of Jesus. All right, everybody, let's count down. 10, 9, can you believe that we're here, right? 8, 7, there was none of that. In fact, the, the women, they went to rewrap the body for burial because two guys Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus in the tomb and the women came back in a couple of days because I'm sure that the guys didn't do it right, right? And so they're coming back because they believe he's dead and you don't come back to rewrap the body if you think that a resurrection is going to take place. No believers, no Christians, no church, no Bible. This is it. You feel that? Hold that emotion for just a moment and let me fast forward 350 plus years later to February 27th, 380 AD. The emperor of Rome, Theodosius, issues what's called the Edict of Thessalonica. This edict announced that Christianity was the official religion of Rome and that Jesus was Lord over this empire. Now, isn't that remarkable? That some 300 years earlier, they crucified Jesus. And now some 300 years later, they are deifying Jesus. It's as if they went, oopsie, we were wrong and that Jesus is Lord. You know, if you go to Rome today, you know what you will find? You'll find crosses 
everywhere, and they don't represent terror and oblivion and crucifixion. You'll find crosses everywhere, and it only represents one person and one cross, and that is Jesus. And it's an announcement that God is love because Jesus came to earth to express that and display that in the most unmissable way. You know what you won't find in Rome? The Roman Empire. You know what you won't find in Rome? The Caesars who claim to be lords. What you will find are people who are longing for hope, hope that's found in Jesus. What you will find are people who desire to walk the streets and go to the places where this rabbi walked and the places where he sat and where he taught because they believe that Jesus is Lord. And if that's all that you knew, and maybe it is for some of you, You might have to ask yourself, like, what happened from this moment when they crucified him to this moment where they deified him? Like, what took place? Something had to take place. And I'm so glad that you're curious about that because I have an answer for you. This is it. Written from an eyewitness who was there named John found in the pages and documents that we call the Bible. John tells us what he saw and what he heard and what he experienced and what started as, this is it, became quickly, this is it. In John chapter 20, verse 1, we read, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. By the way, John is writing this, and so when he references the one who Jesus loved, he's referencing himself. And here, he's telling us the story of the resurrection of Jesus, but he felt it was important to pause and go, hi, I'm the one who Jesus loves. He might have been the baby of the family because isn't it true that the babies of the family are like, it's me, right? Like, like watch, just for a moment. If you're the baby of the family, would you just raise your hand? Yeah? Did you see how arrogant that was? They were like, it's me. I totally set you up for that, didn't I? So John and Peter are heading to the tomb and Peter, Peter's there with him and John says, uh, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved in case you wondered And Mary says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary doesn't see this and neither does Peter or John see this as a miracle. They think that the body has been taken and they're confused and they're wondering what happened. And so Peter and John tell Mary, maybe you went to the wrong tomb. You know, women aren't great with directions. Men are great with directions, right? You know that that's a lie, right? But we just like to lie to ourselves. And so maybe Peter and John are like, hey, maybe, maybe we'll go and we'll check it out. And so John tells us that Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. And, and I have to imagine that as they started for the tomb, they were walking, but then realizing like, I wonder what happened I wonder what took, was she lying? Was she confused? And then maybe it turned into like a power walk and then it turned into like a really fast walk. And then we're told by John in verse four, both were running because suddenly they're like, we got to get there and we got to be a part of it. We got to see what happened. And then John, for some reason, he likes to add this little nugget. He says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
You know, we're taught in history that the disciples were young men. Peter was the oldest, probably 21, 22, 23. A lot of the other guys were in their teens. John is assumed to be the youngest because of how Jesus addresses him and treats him like a younger brother, maybe a junior higher or maybe an early high school kid. So doesn't it make sense why he puts these things in there? He's writing the greatest truth ever told. And he's like, hey, two things you need to know. Jesus loves me and I'm faster than you. And so he arrives at the tomb first and he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, we get it, John, thank you for that. He went inside and then here, these words, he saw, he believed. And then what we're told in history is that within just a couple of hours, Jesus appears to the first disciples, the first followers, not as a ghost, not as a figment of their imagination, fully resurrected, fully restored, fully healed. He ate with them, hugged them, high-fived them, loved them, talked with them, and he was alive. And we know that he was alive because history teaches that the disciples immediately engage and re-engage into his story. Peter went from fisherman to follower to fisherman to back to a follower again. Most of them went from believer to don't believe to we're believing again because Jesus is alive. Not because of what he taught, not because of what they saw, but because of what he claimed. And what he claimed was that he was God and here he is crucified and then three days later resurrected from the grave. No wonder they deified him because nobody else does that. This, my friends is the story that we celebrated maybe perhaps in their hearts and in their minds when they saw Jesus. They, were, they remembered what he taught them at a funeral when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. That maybe perhaps there was more to the story than what they thought. And here's why this is so important for me and here's why it's so important for you. The story of Jesus, his death and his resurrection is not just a Bible story, but it's the story. And it's the story that interacts with your story. Because the story of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection do something for us, something we've longed to know since our birth, maybe we've said it out loud or maybe we felt it deep in our souls and we've never said it out loud. The story of Jesus resolves life's greatest mystery. How can you know where you stand with God? And isn't that the question that we are all curious about? Put aside religious practice and doctrine and theology and where each of us come from. The beautiful part about the church and the beautiful part about active church is that we can come together unified on this question and on one person. And the question is, where do we stand with God? And the answer is, look to Jesus. Because he is the one that announced in the most 
unmissable way how God feels about you. And you can, yeah, but that information all that you want. But Jesus died and Jesus rose and invites you to know about where you stand with God. And you know where you stand with God? Right next to God. That's where you stand. That's why Jesus came. And that's the invitation that you and I get to say yes to. Here's, here's how Peter, here's how Peter wrote it. He said, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. This master, this father of our master, Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and life whole. Who would not want to live outside of that? Maybe you. And maybe that's the thing that has kept you from saying yes. Because you have convinced yourself or have been convinced by other Christians who have mistreated you about where you stand with God. The resurrection is the greatest announcement that you stand with God because God stands with you. And when Jesus is Lord of your life, it changes your life, friends. God removed the power of death over you when Jesus resurrected from the grave. Which means that all of the things that you say define you and shape you and keep you from God, all of the inevitable things that you keep playing in your head that are reasons why you don't follow, don't believe, aren't a Christian, don't go to church, all of those things, God defeated those things when Jesus resurrected from the grave. Death! can't even hold him down. And when you trust in Jesus, it can't hold you down. It's not the end of your story. A great man in my life named Tom Mercer once said to me when I was 23 years old, he said these words, Michael, and that's when you know he's being serious. Michael, when you trust in Jesus, what is true of Jesus is true of you. Bill Gaither has written a lot of the songs that the church has sang in the 70s and in the 80s. Bill had his heart stirred after reading the story of the resurrection of Jesus from the letter that John wrote. And he sat down with pen and paper and began to just write some words that came to his heart. And maybe you're familiar with these words if you've been a church person for a while. Even if you aren't a church person, you might be familiar with these words because they are pretty famous in our lexicon. But Bill wrote these words in response to the work of Jesus through the grave and on the cross and from the resurrection. He wrote on a piece of paper, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. And maybe for us, today could be the day and now could be the moment because the future starts now. Maybe today that song could be our song. Maybe we could sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, which means for you and for me, my past doesn't hold the most power, but my Savior does. 
Maybe today, the song that we could sing, your song and my song, is this. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And it can mean for you and for me that my present isn't shaped by my problems, but my purpose. Like, I'm not here randomly. That God has given me a gift. That I can live a life of significance. Maybe your song and my song could be because I know he holds the future. And you could sing and I could sing. My greatness is measured by my surrender to Jesus. And maybe the song that we could sing together is life is worth living. Because my value is determined by my creator. Friends, I, I get it. Life is complicated. Things get hard. But there is no better way forward than to knowing where you stand with Almighty God by trusting in the person and in the work of Jesus. I have almost 30 years of relationship with Jesus. I have a story that I could tell you of moments where this is it and moments where this is it. And yet as I look back, when he promises that the future starts now when I surrender, I can tell you from personal experience that he ain't lying, friends. Jesus is Lord. And that means that Jesus is for you. Because he is the God of all time and all creation. And he invites you to surrender and trust in him because he knows you best. So today, today we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive through the act of baptism. And baptism isn't the thing that rescues and saves. Baptism is the announcement that you have been rescued and saved. And when you find yourself calling Jesus Lord of your life, and yet your life looks a bit different than the way that Jesus would invite you to live, the beautiful part about following Jesus is that you're not disqualified or eliminated, but he is a God who has forgiven sins, and he gives you forgiveness when you ask. And so today, I... There's no better, more appropriate way than to celebrate the work of God in our lives than to going public with that work through the act of baptism. To say that he is dead, that he has forgiven me, to come out of the water and say that he is alive, that he has rescued me. Friends, today I want to invite you to not just be a believer. I want to invite you to be a doer. I want to invite you to be a follower. So often Christians are sitters. And we don't take action or do things. May we be people that start today. That follow, that do, because our future starts now. And some of you, you came into this place ready to be baptized. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you an invitation to do that. But there are some of you that came into this place and you weren't expecting, planning to get baptized, but now you're thinking about it. And I want you to know that even though you haven't prepared for this, we've prepared for you. 
We have clothes for you. We have towels for you. We even have hair caps for you because you got some great hair. And so we have hair caps for you. For some of you, gentlemen, we have a blow dryer back there because your beard is gorgeous and you want that thing to look gorgeous the rest of the day. And so we'll let you, we'll let you blow dry it back there. It'll be fantastic. We thought about you, even though you haven't thought about this until right now. And the reason why we thought about you is because from the very beginning, God thought about you. And so, why would you want to live outside of God's love? Why would you want to live outside of God's power? Why would you want to live outside of God's story? The God of the universe says, you stand right here with me. So in just a minute, I want to pray some words over you. While I'm praying, if you're an activator helping with baptisms, I want to invite you to get ready to do that. If you're planning on getting baptized, if you'll just sit for a moment, I'm going to give you an invitation in just a moment. And for those of you that are thinking about getting baptized, you weren't thinking about it until you walked in. Now you are. This is your moment. Now is your time. The future starts today. So I want to pray some words over you, and then we'll invite you to make a courageous, powerful decision. Heavenly Father, it is with great joy that I get to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. A real, actual, historical event that doesn't start with once upon a time, but begins with the future starts now. And God, I pray for those who have signed up to get baptized and those that are thinking about getting baptized, that God, you would give them the courage to move when we invite them to move. Heavenly Father, I pray that this moment would be a stake in the ground moment for all of us in this place. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these words. And together we say amen and amen and amen.